Amen. Austin Stone, man, it's so good to be with you guys this morning. So glad that you are here. Welcome to church. And uh, we also have our North Congregation, our West Congregation, our Northwest Congregation, and our St. John Congregation uh, joining us. They're not actually in this room. We are downtown Austin, but we're so glad to be streaming from downtown. And it's a good reminder that our church is like gathering all over this city. Sometimes when you are in one room or with one congregation, you can kind of forget, oh man, God is doing some amazing things uh, in and through you guys as a church all across this city. So I'm really glad that you were here. My name is Aaron and I'm one of the pastors here and um, we are going to, uh, we're going to open up the Bible and we're going to continue where we're, we're going in the book of Matthew. And I don't know if you've ever thought about Jesus being angry. We don't like to often think about Jesus being angry. We like to think of kind, compassionate, gentle, and lowly Jesus. And we don't often remember or think about the times when Jesus got angry. But this passage of scripture today, we see one of the few times that Jesus actually responds with anger. And that's where we're at today. Something pressed up against the heart of Jesus that pushed in such a way that the the most righteous response for a holy God was righteous anger. So let's look at it together. I think you're going to see that his anger actually is a display of mercy and love today. And so I hope that you are inspired and challenged by it like I have been. We are in Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to read verses 12 through 17. So let's read this together. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. All right, a little uh, Bible history for you for just a second here so we can understand what this scene, what's actually going on here. Every single year, Jerusalem became a hot spot for travelers. Every year, Jews observed Passover, and families would travel all over to Jerusalem, trekking through crazy land for days and days, packing up luggage, and during Passover week, they'd show up in Jerusalem. Some estimate, historians estimate, that there is somewhere between 300 to 500,000 extra people showing up in Jerusalem every single year to worship, to celebrate, to sacrifice together as a family. So you can imagine in this scene the kind of hustle and bustle that's going on in this city when Jesus shows up to Jerusalem just a week before this, and then he goes to the temple that we're looking at in this story right here. It had to have been totally nuts. It had to have been crazy to see all of this kind of going on. This is where Jesus shows up. And so we talk about the temple. I think it's important for us to understand what the temple was. So this is a 3D rendering of what an artist thinks the temple might have looked like based on history and what it looks like. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was by far King Herod's greatest thing that he had ever made. It was massive. It was beautiful. 
Only the priests could go into the side of the inner temple, but it was surrounded by three courts, right? And three courts had three different purposes for three different groups of people. One court was for Jewish men only. And then another court was for Jewish uh, men and women. And then the third court, the outside court, furthest away from the temple, was reserved for non-Jews. And that was called the court of the Gentiles, okay? It's the place that this story is unfolding, the court of the Gentiles. This is where we find Jesus. And this courtyard, it would have been filled with all kinds of livestock, all kinds of animals. You've got oxen, you've got lambs, and the Bible says you've got pigeons uh, running around that are all for sale. And since people have traveled all over the world to this place, it wasn't practical to bring your own animal with you. So what do you do? You get to Jerusalem, they set up this, uh, you know, this cool marketplace where they could sell you a bird or they could sell you a lamb or they could sell you an oxen. You didn't have one with you, so it makes sense. You buy it. Seems like a really good system when you're coming from all over the world to come offer a sacrifice during the week of Passover. But this marketplace wasn't fair. It was an unjust system. Every male over 20 had to pay a temple tax just to simply get into the temple. And it was against the law for you to use foreign money in the offering in the temple. So a couple of really astute businessmen connected with the priesthood and they set up what's called money changing tables. Basically like foreign exchange booths that you see in the airport. You've got a type of money and you want to change it into a different type of money, but it was unfair. It was unjust. They also had to pay an extraordinary and inflated price for an animal. These sellers, these money changers, these merchants were taking advantage of poor people by overcharging them just to engage in Passover. Like poor people who couldn't afford a lamb were sold a pigeon. Historians say that in this day, you could buy a pigeon outside of the temple for about four coins. But once you got inside the temple, they were selling pigeons for around 75 coins. That's like 20 times as expensive. So the priests made profit off of the merchants, and the merchants made profit off of the people, and everybody was getting rich on the backs of people who didn't have money and were simply coming out of obedience to show up at Passover and sacrifice an animal. It's called extortion. They were taking advantage of people coming to worship God. And beyond that, the place that they chose to set up this unfair, unjust marketplace was in the court of the Gentiles, the only place in the temple that non-Jews could come and actually worship. They made that place into a place that was now loud, busy, crowded, and unfair. Bottom line, all the priests, all the merchants They didn't care about the people coming to worship. They didn't care about their worship. They just saw dollar signs. So it makes all the sense in the world why Jesus would show up to the temple and be filled with what? Anger. He saw this thing playing out, and he said, I'm angry about this. So angry, in fact, that he flipped over tables. Another passage in the scripture and another gospel says that he made a whip out of cords. Like, he was angry at what he saw. And some of you might think, wait, hold up. Jesus can be angry. Isn't anger a a sin? Like, was Jesus, like, sinning when he was angry? 
John Christensen is an early church father said this about anger, and I think this is super helpful. He said, he that is angry without cause sins, but he who is not angry when there is cause sins. In other words, there is such a thing as righteous anger. The problem with you and me, right, is sometimes we might even start with a little bit of righteous anger, but in about two and a half seconds, it turns into sinful anger, right? It's a really hard thing for us to grasp a sense of righteous anger, but there is such a thing as pure, holy, righteous anger, and God, in this moment, Jesus is filled with it. That's the biblical truth. He never sinned, but he was angry, flipping tables, turning over chairs, driving everybody out from the temple. So think for a minute. Think about what he was so mad about. Think about this picture, this drama, this scene that's playing out in front of him. But what was it about that moment that would cause the compassionate, gentle, lowly Jesus to be filled up with anger to flip tables? See, the cleansing of the temple, it shows us how concerned he is with pure and unpolluted worship. This story shows us, man, it has showed me this week how concerned Jesus actually is with worship being pure and unpolluted. Man, Jesus is furious because the temple is supposed to be a place where people far from God can declare their need for him. Like the Gentiles and the court of the Gentiles should be able to come and freely worship God, but instead they were being commoditized and profited from. This temple is supposed to be a place where people far from God can declare their dependence on him, and instead, it became a place where people falsely assumed their closeness to God just based on a religious exercise. Listen, temple attendance was not the problem here, but the reason for temple attendance was the problem here. The reason these people were showing up, the reason they were selling things, the reason they were profiting, that was the problem. In the Gospel of John, the same story is told through the perspective of John. And he says that in the moment Jesus did this, the disciples remembered a passage of scripture, which when I read that, I was like, good job, guys. Finally, there's so many times where you're like, come on, guys. Do you remember everything that Jesus done? Well, they remember a passage of scripture from the Old Testament, and it was this verse. The verse is, zeal for your house will consume me. God says, zeal for the house of God will consume me. You know what zeal literally means? Zeal literally means a great amount of energy given toward a particular cause. There's some zealous people in the room. You give a great amount of your energy and your time to some particular effort. Jesus is full of zeal in this moment. He is zealous for the house of God. He's zealous for God's glory. He is zealous for God's worship. Jesus possessed holy, righteous anger because he saw that worship was polluted. It was diluted. It was ritualized. It was tainted. It was being prophetized. So what did he do? He cleared it out. He pushed the tables out, turned the chairs over, and he drove people out because Jesus demands pure 
and unpolluted worship. So if Jesus takes the temple, his church, his people, that seriously, man, think about how serious we should also take those things. Like it says something, it said something to me this week about how serious we should take what we do. Like some of us need Jesus to show up and flip over some tables in our hearts. Some of us need for him to turn over some chairs and to drive some things out of our hearts and out of our lives, to drive things out and take things that should be reserved for him and make them reserved for him, to take things that we've made unholy and make them sacred, to get rid of things, to add things, to make us pure and unpolluted in our worship. Like Some of us need to repent of ritualizing worship, like making a ritual out of loving Jesus and worshiping him and showing up at church and living in community and being generous. Some of us need to stop ritualizing it and have a heart for Jesus. Some of us need to stop viewing ourselves as better than the other camp or the other tribe. Some of us need to Repent of missing the whole point of worship completely. Thinking that it's a, about something that you can get. So if it fits your preferences and it's the style that you like or the kind of delivery that you like, then it's cool. But if not, I'm just kind of checked out. Like what in your life, what in your heart has become polluted? Would you let Jesus flip over some tables in you like he's been doing in me this week? Because God's people are always called to worship him appropriately. We're called to worship him appropriately. So what is pure and unpolluted worship? All right, what is pure and unpolluted worship? This sermon has one point. One point is Jesus wants your worship to be pure and unpolluted. All right, so what in the world is that? What is it and is it even possible? Like we are a bunch of sinful people that struggle and doubt and fear, is it possible for us to not have money changers in our heart that are greedy and looking to store up things for ourselves? What is pure and unpolluted worship? I'm going to give you a working definition of worship, all right? This is not like the end-all, be-all. This is not from the Bible. This is just a helpful definition for what worship is, and it's this. Worship is our full life response to God for who he is, and for what he's done. Worship is our full life response to God for who he is and for what he has done. All right, if you've ever been to a University of Texas football game, okay, yep, you have. Uh, My wife and I uh, love going to UT football games, and if you uh, have ever been, you know that there's, there's one basic truth, all right? When the team wins, when our team wins, you cheer, right? And I don't know if you've ever noticed or not, it's not like you're going to like a game show or some talk show. There's no applause sign. There's nobody that steps on the microphone and goes, uh, now crowd, we shall cheer because our team has won. No, what happens is in that moment when your team wins, everybody jumps up and responds to what just happened. You lose your mind. You've got dudes shirtless with UT written on it. You find yourself hugging somebody you don't even know. The crowd goes nuts. Why? Because something really significant that you love and you were invested in just happened, and you can't help but respond. Worship is similar to this. 
Worship is similar to this because it's not something that somebody has to tell you to do. It's not something you muster up. It's not a feeling that you wait to get. Worship is the most natural response in the world for a Christian to worship God. It's a reaction. It's a response to something that has already happened. It's a response to somebody who is already right in front of you. His name is Jesus. We are worshiping when we're responding to God for who he is and for what he's done. Guys, that's why what we do here on Sundays as we gather together for corporate worship, it's why it's so critical in the life of a believer. It's why we sing songs. It's why we sing them passionately. And I know that singing is not the whole part of worship in the Christian life, but it's why here at the Austin Stones, why we believe that we want to have a culture of freedom and engagement, a place where you are engaging with God, not just listening to worship happening or watching somebody up here worship, but involved engaging in it because we're responding to the living God who left heaven and all of its beauty to come to earth, to take on flesh, to walk to the cross, to die a sinner's death, to defeat sin and defeat the grave and make it possible for you and I to enter past the court of the Gentiles all the way to the throne of grace where you get to draw near to the living God. Man, that's better than your favorite football team winning the game. That is better than any prize that you will ever get. It is better than any gift you will ever get. The fact that you get access to the living God should, in the life of a believer, produce a response, a reaction that says, God, you are incredible. It's why like, I, I've, I've never understood how a Christian would say, I'm just not that expressive in worship. It's just not my thing. Like I'm here but I don't feel the need to show it. I mean, somebody who's had their heart completely captivated by the living God and realizes the treasure that they have in Jesus Christ cannot contain themselves when they worship because we're responding to him. Listen, human beings were created to respond. You were created to react. When you watch a great chick flick, you cry. When you go to ACL and you watch George Strait, you're going to stand on your feet for 55 minutes, belting out every lyric and dancing with the person you came with. When you watch your daughter win first place in the talent show in middle school, even when she's not good, you stand up at the end of that thing and you clap like the proud father or mother that you are. When your friend scores the winning touchdown, you lose your mind because you were proud in that moment of your friend that accomplished something that he didn't even think was possible. You created to respond. It's a part of your human nature. There are times to be calm and there are times to be enthusiastic, but we can't give all of our coldness to Jesus and our best enthusiasm to everything else in the world. So many times we can stumble into a worship service and with apathetic voices and still bodies and hands in our pocket sing passionless songs to the one who has written our story, the one that saved us from the grave, the one that's given us his Holy Spirit and called us son 
and daughter. And in that moment, something is polluted. Something's diluted in that moment. We're missing out on one of the greatest privileges of our human existence, and that is to worship God because he's the one that broke down walls for us to commune with him. Psalm 34 says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, the psalmist says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He says, magnify God with me. Let's exalt the living God together. Let's do it with one voice, with one melody, with one song. Let's do it because he is worthy. Praise is greedy because it is always seeking to multiply itself. Praise cannot be content to be solitary. It craves company. Praise is always covetous for more praise. Praise tries to be infectious. It's always after a fellowship of praise. Listen, Jesus, Jesus doesn't want anything getting in the way of our finding complete satisfaction and joy in him through worship. He will do anything to flip over tables that would hinder you as a Christian from worshiping him with total satisfaction and total joy. It doesn't mean your life is in order. It doesn't mean you've had a perfect week. It doesn't mean you had seven times uh, in the word this week and your missional community group was amazing and y'all did 10,000 things this week and so you can come in here like a super Christian and finally worship Jesus. No, it means I choose to come worship Jesus because of who he is, because of what he's done, not because of who I am and not because of what I've done, but I look at him and I'm stirred to react. Listen, worship isn't just for God. Worship is because of God. It's why we do what we do. So I want you to notice real quick what Jesus says he wants the temple to actually be like. So he gets all this stuff out of here. He flips over tables and chairs. He drives people out. But then he tells them what kind of temple he wants it to actually be. And what he does is he quotes the Old Testament. He smashes together Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. My house, my temple shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. I think it's so interesting how Jesus compares what's going on in the temple to caves in mountains where robbers hide out. He says, you've made this a den of robbers. His words sound kind of harsh here, but listen, a good king always breaks up the hiding places of bandits that are near the kingdom that he loves. Always. He runs to them. He seeks them out. He breaks them up because he cares about the kingdom. Jesus couldn't bear to see what's supposed to be a place of worship made into a cave for runaway robbers. He wanted it to be a house of prayer. What's a house of prayer? I think Jesus is talking about worship here. He wants his people to come to this place and worship. Oftentimes, you know, when we think of worship, you might look on a website or you see a church sign or billboard and it says, 
worship times, right? And that's a little confusing because worship is a full life response. And then sometimes it's easy to go, well, worship is only when I sing or when that person is preaching. But essentially, listen, worship is prayers. Songs and melodies just give voice to our prayers. When you're singing out these things, you're praying to God. When we sing songs together as a church, we are praying collectively. God, your love is relentless. Jesus, you paid all of it. Lord, I need you. Prayer, when you have melody and lyrics combined to it, is an incredible, wonderful opportunity to just be vulnerable with God. To say, this is who I am right here in the moment, and this is who you are right here in this moment. Prayer is where we cry out to God with our needs, with our fears, with our doubts, our longings. Prayer is where we sit with God, we gaze at him, sometimes in silence, sometimes loud and boisterous, but always with eagerness and expectation. Guys, it's why we come into this place and you see people throwing their hands up in the air. It's a prayer of God, make me surrendered to you. It's why we want you to sing out to like be expressive even with your body because what you're doing is you're saying, God, you are the king. I am not. I need what you have. You are the one. When we're praying, when we're singing, we're saying, God, you're the king. We respond to you. And Jesus says, that's what I want my house to be, a place of worship. And I don't want it polluted or tainted with anything else. Come worship me. Man, the good news here is that Jesus doesn't just get angry and then the story ends. Like, period. <laughs> Where would the hope be in that, right? And Jesus also doesn't run out of the temple and st- you know, keep being angry, knocking over produce tables and just yelling at people. The story does not end with Jesus's anger. He is focused in his anger. And then he does something extraordinary. After cleaning out the temple, man, I want you to see who he invites in and what their response is to him. The Gospel of Mark tells this same story, and this is, how the, this is how Mark recounts Jesus' words to the people after this. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but he adds this, for all nations. My house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus, man, he's not interested in just clearing out this space so it'll be quiet. He's not just hoping that there'll be less people or no people. He wants this place to be a house of worship for all nations, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, but for everybody. You see what Jesus is saying here? Like Jesus is directly contradicting social and religious norms of the day. People thought the temple needed to be cleared of foreigners when Jesus was actually cleansing it for foreigners. Instructions were given by God, right, to have these three temples, and the court of the Gentiles was actually to ensure that people who weren't Jewish had a place to come worship God. Because it's God saying, hey, I am not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God for all people from every tongue, every nation, every tribe, Jesus, the true and better priest, man, he showed up to call all of those who were far off, who were not near God. It's this beautiful picture of Jesus clearing things out and advocating 
for all nations, all ethnicities, all the weary, all the tired. He's wanting worship from everyone. And then, in the very next moment, this beautiful thing happens. Scripture says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And what a wonderful display of the heart of Jesus in this moment. His righteous anger is followed by his righteous mercy. Isn't it amazing that blind peasants and limping beggars weren't seen as a defilement in the holiest place by Jesus? Instead, they were welcomed in. Listen, guys, a house of worship always turns into a house of mercy. Always. This place, this house of worship should be a house of mercy where people who feel like they're far off, that feel like they're the most sinful, that feel like they could never have access to God, come to this house of worship and actually find it to be a place of mercy where Jesus heals them. And as soon as Jesus brings healing to these people, the scripture says that they do what? They erupt in worship. They say, Hosanna. They belt out with awe, with wonder, with expression, and they go, Jesus just healed me. Jesus is the true and better priest. Jesus made a way for me, so I will worship him. They responded to him with raw, unhindered worship. I want to just take this and I want to, I want to put it like in our hands real quick, because I don't want you to miss this today. You were the outsider welcomed in. You were the beggar. Christian, you were the weary. You were the broken. I was the broken. And Jesus broke down the walls and turned over tables and did everything that it would take, everything that it would take to welcome me in and to welcome you in. And that temple that you just saw, as beautiful as it was, as magnificent as it was, as strong and impressive as it might have been, Jesus came to build a better temple, a new temple. Not one with brick and mortar, but one with people. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people from every background, people that are rich, people that are poor, men and women, weak and strong, Jesus is the better temple And he has invited you in to the closest possible space where you get to see and know what his heart is like. Ephesians 2 says it this way. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christian, he's talking about you. If that doesn't stir your heart to worship, then I don't know that you're fully knowing and embracing the truth of what God says he's done for you and he's done in you. Listen, do not settle for religion. 
This is not religion that we're a part of. This is not a religious exercise today. Don't settle for religion. Don't settle for keeping tables and chairs set up neatly in your life when Jesus wants to flip them over and drive everything out that doesn't belong and hinders you from worship. This might free some of you up today. God is not interested in your religiosity. And God also is not waiting for you to open up your own blind eyes or to stop limping around. He welcomes you to a house of worship and says, this is a house of mercy. I want your worship. I want your prayers just as you are in the moment because I want to show you mercy. Listen, I wonder today if you would just let him flip over some tables and chairs that he wants and needs to do in you. Let him turn things upside down. Let him drive some things out. Let him do what he's best at. He's best at captivating a heart with radical mercy, generous grace, and perfect cleansing. So church, wherever you're at today, respond to him. You were created to respond to him. Bring him pure, honest, unpolluted, unhindered worship today because you were made for that. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I, I have such a hard time understanding why you would want us. But you do. Jesus, thank you for making a way for us to know what your heart is like Thank you that though we were far off, you brought us near. God, I pray for my church today that our worship would be wholehearted, would be genuine, would be expressive today because we're responding to the living God who knows us and sees us and chooses to love us and show us mercy. May this church, God, be a house of worship. May it be a house of prayer. May it be a house of mercy because you are the king of this house. We love you. We need you. We want to just sing out our prayers to you right now and trust and believe that you are filled with joy, that you delight in the praises of your people. So it's in your name, Jesus, I pray and ask. Amen. Amen.